People's social media feeds notwithstanding, life is pretty mundane most of the time. You know what I mean, right? Like most people's social media feeds are pretty impressive most of the time. Of course, we all know that your social media feed does not accurately represent the entirety of your life. If you're careful, like most people are, your social media feed is curated and it puts your best foot forward. And I understand and appreciate that. I love those filters. Now, there's a fine line, right? You always know when someone has selected the alien filter, you know, and all of a sudden their skin is like as perfect as porcelain. I call that the alien filter, right? So you want to stay away from that one because everybody knows that ain't you, right? But I appreciate the fact that, you know, we want to present the best side of ourselves, but that can become a problem if you begin thinking that everybody's life is as perfect as it looks on social media, because most of the time that is not the case. Most of the time, life is pretty mundane. Here's the definition of the word mundane, of relating to or characteristic of the world, right? It has a Latin root, mundi, right? Mundane. Of, relating to, characteristic of the world, practical, transitory, and ordinary, commonplace. I love that. Characteristic of the world, characteristic of our lives, mundane. Next time someone asks you, so how was your week? Just say, it was mundane. (laughs) It's not that bad, right? It was characteristic of the world. I think the truth is everyone's life is like this. I have a little photo uh, uh, sample to show you what our lives are like most of the time. Let's go to the first one. So this is uh, courtesy of the Brown family, and um, the captions are the best. Right? The caption that was included with this photo was, just another walk, and you can see everyone's thrilled about it. So if you particularly look at the left-hand side of the frame, you'll see that the Brown men were super excited to go on another walk. Why is this so annoying? Because you do it all the time. You know, like, I'd be okay if we do it once. Like, I got to walk the dog one time. Fine, I'll do that. I got to do it tomorrow and then the next. It's mundane. It's so boring. Okay, let's go to the next one. This is great. (laughs) So this takes a minute, right, to figure out. You're like, yeah, it's a baby and a jumper, right? You're like, yeah, Smarly Books and a jumper, no big deal. Wait a minute. Sweet Jenny, she said to me, you know, I spend most of my life cleaning up puke. I was like, exactly, right? And all the young parents said, amen, right? One time my child puked in my mouth, you know? It's like, I have all these memories. It was really great. I took a trip down memory lane with the young moms of grace this week. So, well, I'll show you. I'll tell you the next thing in a minute. So let, let's go to the next slide. That's just awesome. This is great. This is from the Irvins. This is Lindsay sent me this. She's like, uh, yeah, this is how my kids leave the table. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> Me too. That's how they leave my table. You know, you'd think it was art. You know, like they're like terrorists. I'm, I'm going to leave one piece of pepperoni just to express myself. Bunch of filthy ants. Isn't that the best? And, and the, my favorite part of the caption was, used Band-Aid included. Right? <laughs> like that's exactly how she found it. Like in situ. Like a used straw. It looked like they were spitting on the table. And it just left it like that, you know? It's not, this did not make it on the social media feed, I'm just saying. Let's go to the next one. This is pretty fun. <laughs> I told you that young kids are terrorists, right? That's Sammy, that's Sammy Bites. I mean, he's a, he's a criminal. And Katie, 
Katie said to me, she's like, I literally spend my day chasing this criminal around. She's like, this is not even the worst of what he does. And I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Her life is so mundane. It's amazing. I love it. Let's go to the next one. This is beautiful. So this is from the Gent household. And Kristen sent me this. And she's like, you know, every day it's the same thing. You think they'd never seen their father come home from work before. <laughs> if you know Adam Gent, you know that, you know, he works a little bit, right? So every day, same thing. She wonders, where are my kids? And then she's like, I don't know where my kids are. And they're just up in the window watching for daddy. It's like normal. And I love the bed. Notice that the bed is definitely not show ready. I'm just saying, right? Pretty mundane stuff. Let's go to the next one. This one takes the cake. This the best day of my life. So this, this, this photo inspired the hook to today's sermon. This gave me the whole idea. This is courtesy of Katie Franks. If you don't know her, you need to get to know her. She's sitting down here in the front. Uh, maybe say hello to her today later on. She's just a wonderful, wonderful woman. And uh, this she posted online because she is brave and also crazy. And uh, <laughs> if you follow her on Facebook, you'll have already seen this. But the best part is how she describes what was happening. Little Zoe basically <clears throat> decided she didn't want to eat dinner. Not having them, not eating. And then she decided that what she wants is a popsicle for dinner. So she's going to eat a popsicle for dinner. Of course, mom says, you're not going to eat a popsicle for dinner. Now, if you know Zoe, you know that, you know, she is definitely full of life. And so she was intent on taking matters into her own hands. And of course, mother was not about to let her child break her. So mother sat down in front of the freezer and you can see that hilarity ensued. Now, what I love most about this picture is that I didn't notice the nuance until friend Katie pointed it out to me. I guess because I didn't say anything, she assumed I hadn't noticed. She said, and do you see that she's pinching me? And I was like, oh my gosh, the humanity. Not only has she decided to usurp her family's dinner time, not only has she decided to try and take control of the situation, but she is pinching her mother, who has the audacity to flout her. It's just the best thing I saw all week. <laughs> Literally the best thing I saw all week. Thank you, Katie, for letting me use that and for inspiring me with a wonderful sermon hook. What does this prove to us? This proves to us that life is not awesome all the time. It's just not. It's not awesome all the time. So the question is this. How do you find joy in the midst of the mundane? Fortunately for you, today's story has some clues. Take a look at Genesis 18. I'm going to read you the whole chapter. And the Lord appeared to him, it's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he, Abraham, stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, 
Where's Sarah, your wife? He said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come up to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abram answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak with the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Only let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. (laughs) He knows he's pushing it here. Suppose thirty are found there. God answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. God answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham said, I will, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. He knows his time is up. Suppose ten are found there. God answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he'd finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. I love this sermon i got 25 minutes left to preach it. Some clues on how to find joy in the midst of the mundane. Verse 1. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. It's siesta time. Okay? That's what's happening here. Siesta time. Abram is sitting literally under the front edge of his tent, which would have been staked to the ground. So he's sitting in the shade because it's so hot. I grew up in Israel. Israel is so hot from May to September that if you do find yourself outside in the heat of the day, you literally move from shade to shade. I don't know if you've ever been anywhere so hot that you have to move from shade to shade. And if you do not have water, you will die. Last year, my father, who's here this morning, and I were filming in Israel in Qumran, down by the Dead Sea, where John the Baptist used to hang out with the Essenes. As we got out of our vehicles to begin trekking to the set, 
don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it was so hot that my entire body, every pore on my body opened at the same time and was instantly sweating. It was 105 degrees. Just insane. This is what Israel is like. And we know that Abraham lived in Mamre, which is very close to Hebron. And Hebron is in the southwestern portion of the country, southwest of Jerusalem, basically in a rock desert. It's horrible. Like, you never want to go there, especially in the warm season. It's so hot outside that he's just doing what he can to shelter himself. I have literally, as a young boy, sat under a tree near Mamre on a school trip. How many of you ever experienced heat like that? Like, it'll kill you. What I'm talking about? It's just so hot, you can hardly bear it. Hmm, I just got a point that I didn't write, which I'll come back to in just a minute. This is ordinary life. He's taking shelter from the sun. I want to point out that despite being God's friend, despite being the once and future patriarch of the Jewish and then the Christian faith, <clears throat> Abraham still has ordinary days. And if he had ordinary days, so will you. You're like, taking shelter in the heat of the day isn't very spiritual. I know. Much of your life won't be very spiritual. So stop expecting everything to be awesome all the time. It's your first point. And while you do that, keep in mind that God will show up. Verses 1 through 5, what happens? The Lord shows up. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. He sat in the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looks up, sees three men, runs to meet them, and bows himself to the ground. We see here in verses 1 through 5 three clues to living your mundane life well. And don't worry, it's not a three-point sermon. There's just three points in this section of the sermon. I've never preached a three-point sermon. Maybe once I've preached a three-point sermon. I hope to never do it again. Three points in this section. He ran to meet them. Verse 2. He ran. Next time the sign of the divine life shows up in your life, run to meet it. You know what I'm talking about? Life can be pretty ordinary, pretty ordinary, pretty ordinary, then all of a sudden you get the sign, this sign of God showing up. Sometimes it's a big sign, sometimes it's just a hint. Can you resonate with that? Sometimes it's fire and lightning, sometimes it's a still small voice. Next time you see a sign of the divine life showing up in your life, run towards it. Don't waste any time. Run to meet it head on. That's cool. That'll help me this week. You deal with the mundane by adding some hustle to your life. I like that. Some hustle. You deal with the mundane by adding some hustle. And where do you hustle? It's very important. Hustle in the direction of the divine life. It's good. Right? You see him? Hustle towards where he's at. That'll help, right? How much time do you spend hustling and like, you got no sign of the divine life at work and that thing you're chasing? Begs the question, why are you chasing it? Aren't you God's people? Don't you want to be where he is? Don't you want to do what you see him doing? Isn't that what Jesus 
did, he only did what he saw the Father doing. Shouldn't you learn to do the same as you are conformed to his image and likeness more and more and more? It's not some highfalutin, difficultly spiritual thing to do. You see the divine life at work? Run towards it. Deal with the divine life by putting some hustle in your life. And while you're hustling, stay humble. I love this. Verse 2. And he bowed himself to the ground. Let's remember that the patriarch is a powerful, wealthy, influential, respected, elderly man. He's almost 100 years old. He's a man with status and stature in this culture at the time. It would not have been customary for him to bow to these strangers. It would have been customary for him to greet them. But he runs toward them. Doesn't care much about his dignity. He sees the divine life. He runs. He lifts up his skirts and runs out into the heat of the day. And he bows himself to that dusty, dirty, roasting ground. He bows the knee to God. You deal with the mundane by staying humble. What does that practically look like in our lives? Most of the time it looks like this. I don't understand, but not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. In my limited experience, that's the sum total of Christian humility. I, I, I don't understand. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. And you know you're all right there because you're quoting Jesus. The great thing about humility is when you're humble before the Lord, when you do say to the Lord and you mean it from your heart, I don't understand this at all. Notice how different that is from some Christians who pretend like they understand everything all the time, like, I've got it all together. If only you were more like me, your life would be great. Those people drive me crazy. I'm like, you're, you're insane. Or lying. Right? It's very important to have the first part. I don't understand why this is happening. Now the faith part comes in, right? You say, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. Right? You declare your faith in the God of the universe. He's in charge, you're not. Once you receive and accept that, it makes treating your fellow man, fellow woman, the right way a lot easier. Because you've already bowed the knee to the God of the universe, so you're already on your knees. It's very hard to dominate somebody from your knees. Send somebody a shout. Right? You submit your plans, your ideas, your ambitions to God. That's what humility looks like. You hustle, you're humble, and you practice hospitality. (laughs) This is great. Verses 3 through 5. Stay a while. Let me, let me bring you some water and a morsel of bread. And then instead he lays out a feast. He goes to Sarah, quick, 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 make some cake. Goes and picks a lamb from his flock. Gives it to one of his young men. Kill this thing quick and cook it up the way you know I like it. It's the heat of the day, remember? Nobody wants to be running around in the heat of the day. It's not convenient. This is the thought that occurred to me that I didn't write. It's very inconvenient, Lord, for you to show up right in the heat of the day. Couldn't you have planned this a little better? I don't need to say any more, right? Y'all feel me. Beautiful. He practices hospitality. Gets it all done. And then while they eat, he stands like a servant. That's what a servant would do in that culture. Patriarch knew a thing or two 
All right? We've talked about his silliness. We've talked about his foolishness. And when you see him in glory, you better give him also a high five. You learned a lot from his life. He stood there like a servant while they ate the meal that he and his family had prepared. He's practicing hospitality. Hospitality in the Bible means the welcoming of strangers. It's a key virtue in the biblical worldview, the welcoming of strangers. It's something that churches sometimes miss just a little bit. We tend to think that hospitality means welcoming each other. That's brotherly, sisterly love. That's agape, right? That's self-giving love. That's what that part is. It's not hospitality. Hospitality is when Grace Community Church becomes Grace Missional Church. Right? When the love of God that is born in your hearts that you express selflessly to one another in acts of kindness and service, when that love begins to express itself to strangers, then you have hospitality, the welcoming of strangers. That's why um, building a church is worth it, because you get this church full of people who love God and love each other, and then you turn their focus outward, and they literally change the world. As that self-giving love that they have learned at the feet of the Lord, that they have practiced washing each other's feet, begins to express itself in a culture that doesn't know anything about self-giving love. Except that they recognize it when they see it. And they don't understand where it comes from. They're like, I don't understand you people at all. That's Jesus. <laughs> That's where you close the loop. You got to say it's Jesus. You got to say it's Jesus. You got to say it's Jesus. Otherwise, we're just a self-help organization, and we all know what that is. Practicing hospitality. Look, <clears throat> if you're gifted with the gift of hospitality, it's literally a spiritual gift, God bless you. Please help all the people like me who are not gifted with hospitality. <laughs> right? Now, some people, it just flows out of them. The selfless love of the stranger, it's just, they're just awesome at it. So if that's you, do it as much as you can, as often as you can. And when you spot people who aren't gifted with hospitality, help them. If you're not gifted with hospitality, I don't want you to like, just check out from this portion of the sermon, think, oh, that's not my job. Get yourself around those people who are gifted in hospitality and force yourself to do what they say. We have a rolling agreement in my household that if my wife tells me we have to go somewhere to see some people, I have to say yes. And most of the time, I'm not in the mood. I'm like, I don't want to go. I'm somewhat introverted. I'm tired. I'm focused on the things i got to do that I consider mission critical, and I don't often consider sitting with people, eating and drinking to be mission critical. I'm like, let me eat a salad and go to work. But I have agreed to listen to my wife because God gave me a wife because I need her. Right? Just like Adam needed Eve. Right? And Eve needed Adam. So we have an agreement. And you know what always happens? It's amazing. One, the people feel loved, and I get humbled. Because as I leave, I say to my wife, I'm so glad I thought of that. <laughs> and she just laughs, you know, because I'm like, it's, it's, that's me repenting. Say, I'm sorry, I'm such a jerk. Oh, God, help me. Okay, so if you're good at it, keep being good at it. If it's a growth opportunity for you, force yourself into situations where you have to get better. You find joy in the mundane by adding some hustle to your life, by being humble, by being hospitable. Three keys to a mundane life well lived. And while doing that, two points in this section, 
Three, two. There you go. There's two. Be prepared for the miraculous and stop doubting. And jump in with both feet when God invites you into what he's doing. It's powerful. So let's look at point number one. Be prepared for the miraculous and stop doubting. Let me read to you verses 9 through 15 real quick. They said to him, this is after the meal, "Um, where's Sarah? She's in the tent. Then the Lord said, look, I'm going to return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Here's the important part. Sarah was listening at the tent of the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased with Sarah. She wasn't menstruating anymore. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Where's Sarah? Let's make sure we're good theologians here for a minute. Is God asking because he doesn't know? No, he knows. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's not asking for his sake. Where's Sarah? He knows exactly where she is. The point for you is this. God knows who you are, and he knows what you need. I believe the whole first section here in chapter 18 is about Sarah. I believe that God showed up for Sarah. He's already told Abraham in the last chapter what's going to happen. Right? He's already told him, you're going to have a son this time next year. He's not coming back to tell Abraham this. Abraham already knows. This whole drama is for Sarah's sake. In my opinion, as a Bible interpreter. He knows where she's at. He knows that today the wife needs a pep talk. Right? So he shows up. You're living life as usual, and then God shows up with exactly what you need today. This time next year, Sarah will have a son. Verse 10, and Sarah was listening at the tent of the door behind him. She's literally just on the other side of the tent enclosure, listening intently to this exchange. And she overhears. And of course, we ought to say that God knew she would overhear, which is why he was talking, which is why he showed up in the first place. For her this day. It's for Sarah today. The teachable point for you is this, and I hope this encourages you today. Even if you're not center stage, God has you in mind. Isn't that good? Somebody say something. Help me, Jesus. Isn't that good? For each of you ever felt ostracized, overlooked, left out? I mean, man may leave you out, but God won't. <laughs> Give him praise. God knows. He knows you're hiding on the other side of the tent. And he came to speak to you today. Even though you may not be center stage, God has you in mind. It means you don't got to strive to be center stage all the time. That'd be nice to cease from striving, knowing that God knows you, exactly what you need, even if you're not center stage. That'll preach.
And what does Sarah do? Verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself. <laughs> Man, we don't even have sex anymore. That's basically what she's saying. This, this is it right there. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? <laughs> He's almost 100. She's like 90. This is hilarious to her. There's no way. The guy's like, um, why are you laughing? Verse 15, I didn't laugh. Why is she lying? Like, God came to talk to her. He knows where she's at. He knows exactly what she's going to do before she does it. I mean, stop lying to God, right? Oh, let's be honest with ourselves, with each other, with the Lord. Dishonesty is so counterproductive. Posing is so counterproductive. Why did she deny it? Because she was afraid. Here's the teachable point for you. If doubt and fear were the matriarch's twin anxieties, don't be surprised if they show up in you. Doubt and fear. Okay, recognize them when they show up in your life as old enemies. And very quickly bring them to the foot of the cross where they will be slain. Doubt and fear, doubt and fear. How many of you deal with doubt and fear on a regular basis? Don't show me your hand, but you know it's you. If that's you, this word is for you today. Doubt and fear. Let them go. Lay them at the foot of the cross. Bring them to Jesus. Okay, Todd, I'm with that, but what should I cling to in their place? You should cling to the Lord. Verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, and Sarah shall have a son. This is powerful. This is your Hebrew moment in today's sermon. At the appointed time, he fla me Adonai. At the appointed time, he fla me Adonai. Once in a while, the interpreters get it so wrong, it boggles the mind. I don't know how you could get at the appointed time from he fla me Adonai. You're like, what does he fla me Adonai mean? It's great. It means there will be miracles from God. So much better than at, at the appointed time. <laughs> We're so dry toast as Christians sometimes, man. You know, wake up a little bit. I'm just saying, there will be miracles from God. Come on now. Much better than at the appointed time. That's what you cling to. You cling to the fact that God's going to do something amazing. Something amazing, I guess. A little Incredibles reference for you there. You want to find joy in the midst of the mundane? Start believing in a wonder-working Jesus and live like it. What does that mean? Well, living like you believe in wonder-working Jesus means jumping in, this is point number two for this section of the sermon, with both feet when God invites you into what He's doing. And that's what happens in verses 17 through 26. I'm not going to read them all, but I'll read you the setup. The three men leave. Abraham goes with them. It sounds like the two men went on ahead to Sodom because geographically you can't overlook Sodom from Mamre. You have to walk for about two days probably. Two and a half, depending how fast you're going. It's the hill country. You've got to go through the mountains. It would take more than two days. Probably three days to walk from Mamre to where you could overlook the Dead Sea. So either the angels went on ahead and the Lord stayed or it's just a literary device. 
The point is Abraham leaves with them to go. And then God says this, Shall I hide, verse 17, from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That's my dad's theme verse. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Verse 17, God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? This is a very important point here. God is up to something, and he's inviting you into it. This is what's happening in this section. God is up to something, and he's inviting Abraham into that something that he's up to. This is not about Abraham arguing with God. This is about God training Abraham by inviting him into something he's already doing. I'll show you how in just a moment. God's up to something and he's inviting you in. Your life, here's the teachable point for you, your life is about joining God on his mission, not about him jumping in on yours. Hey, watch your prayers. Somebody holler at me, right? Am I doing good here? Am I helping you out today? I hope so. I've been obsessing about this since Tuesday. I can hardly sleep this week. Life is about you joining God on his mission, not him joining you on yours. Audit your prayers this week. I don't need to say anymore. You all know what I'm talking about. What's God's mission? A saving mission. As he works to undo the great wrong done in the garden when our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed the Lord and fell as a result into curse, banishment, and sin. Their children, as a result, filled the earth to the point that it was so disgusting that God wiped it out in the great flood. And he saved a remnant, though, Noah and his family, but they did the same thing again. And the only reason God didn't wipe it out again is because he said at the climax of the Noah story that he wouldn't do it again. You think the world is worse than it was before Noah? I've read the account. I've read some history. Looks pretty dark out there, man. And these human beings, made in God's image and likeness to be his friends forever, ran further and further away from him, making themselves disgusting beyond belief with the depth of their depravity and their sin. So you have this holy, good God who made everything that is including you and me to be his friends forever, and you have this race of humans made in his image and likeness, doing everything they can, literally hell-bent on destruction. What a conundrum. What to do? So in the fullness of time, according to the Scriptures, God the Father sent God the Son into space-time history. The Word of God became a man. Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh. He lived among us as a man, fully God and fully man. Ooh, the living word in a body. 
a man, he was tempted in every way in which you'll ever be tempted, yet he was without sin. In fact, he perfectly fulfilled God's holy law and his will. He only did what he saw the Father doing. He was in perfect communion with God the Father at all times. I was in Genesis this past week actually reading about Enoch. You know why God took him away? Because he was his friend. He was in close communion with God. And Jesus, God the Son made flesh, epitomizes close communion with God. In fact, he's so closely in communion with God that he says to his followers and to those who would hear him, those who've seen me have seen the Father. This got him into trouble with the religious elite because they're like, wait a second, now you're a blasphemer. If you're saying those who have seen you have seen the Father, you're saying you're God. Am I hearing you right? He said, exactly right. And they were not going to brook that one at all. So they maneuvered the situation to see this good man, this God man, pinned on a cross between two thieves to die. Of course, this all happened according to God the Father's sovereign will. Because as Jesus Christ, God the Son, hung on that cross, God the Father placed on him the iniquity of us all. Including the iniquity of that high school shooter from this week. It's laid on God the Son. And God the Father punishes him in our place for our sin. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, dies. Then the third day he rises again. First Easter Sunday morning, they go to anoint his body, he's gone. They spill out of the tomb into the garden, there he is. His wrists are pierced, there's a hole in his side, and light in his eyes. This is the victorious risen Lord. Conqueror of sin and death. Crusher of the serpent's head. Your best friend. 40 days later, ascends to the Father's right hand where he's sitting right now, cheering for you. Once in a while, he's building your house because <laughs> he said he goes to prepare a place for you. And he's only there <clears throat> until the Father tells him it's time because only the Father knows the day or the hour. So go ahead now. <laughs> Here's a trumpet I set aside for you. <laughs> Blow a trumpet in Zion. Shout the voice of an archangel. Go back on your white horse. Draw your sword and strike the nations. Renew all things. Make all things right once and for all. Call your friends home. He's going to do just that someday. He's your best friend. Oh. There's a place for you in his host. There's a place for you around the throne of God and of the Lamb. Woo! There's a job for you to do in eternity. Because he has been from before time. And he evermore shall be. He's not done yet. He's not going to be done at the parousia either. That's why... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham. Why? Because he is the father of the salvific line, which is why Matthew begins his book, his genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, with Abraham, which is why God is inviting Abraham into his salvific work in Sodom to let the patriarch practice, to let the patriarch learn. 
So he can teach it to Isaac, who can teach it to Jacob, who can teach it to Joseph, who can teach it to Menashe. Man, I wish I had the whole genealogy memorized. That would have been good, right, if I went through the whole thing right there? I got to write that down, though, man. I'm out of time. I'm almost done. Worship team, I'm like, give me two minutes and then join me. That's why God tells Abraham what he's doing. And of course, God knows how Abraham's wired, which is why he made him his friend. And so God is not surprised when Abraham acts very Jewish. That's not racist, that's biblical. Hey, look, Lord, what if there's 50 righteous? You're going to wipe out the whole city for the sake of, what about? Far be it from you. Okay, okay, okay. If there's 50 righteous. Lord, what if there's 45? Eh, if there's 45, okay, if there's 45, fine. <laughs> 40, 30. 20, 10. Why is Abraham so persistent? Because salvation matters and people matter. Second, we all get this kind of excited about joining Jesus on his salvific work here in the city of Guelph. You watch what will happen. You watch. Rip my shirt. You watch what will happen. Verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Worship team, I'm done. Abraham appeals to God's essential character. Oh, what is God's essential character? Oh, preach, Jim Cantillon. Righteousness and justice is God's essential character. He always does the right thing in any given situation. And his people are called to do the same. Righteousness, justice. Woo, God always does the right thing. Oh, and he invites Abraham into the process so Abraham can wrestle with what right and wrong means. So he can wrestle with the tension between justice and mercy. Would you give mercy to the high school shooter from this week? Or would you prefer he get justice? In light of Jesus, should he get mercy or should he get justice? You deal with some tension when it comes to this. What if you were a parent of one of the 17? Are there Christians writing to the state legislature this week asking for the death penalty? Are there Christians writing to the state legislators this week asking for mercy? God invites Abraham into the process so that he will wrestle with what right means and what wrong means, what justice means and what mercy means. And so that he will contend for the salvation of as many as possible. That's your life mission right there. Wrestle with right and wrong. Embrace the tension of justice and mercy. And contend for the salvation of as many as possible. Stop expecting everything to be awesome all the time. Expect God to show up. Hustle. Be humble and hospitable. Remember, God knows exactly what you need, even if you're not center stage. 
So reject doubt and fear and cling to wonder-working Jesus instead. And then jump in with both feet to the mission of God to separate right from wrong and to do justly and to love mercy while contending for the salvation of as many people as possible. And that is how you find joy in the midst of the mundane.